Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Welcome back to the FemiPod for episode 68. I am here, of course, with my bestie, Esti, and we're joined by Femi expert dietitian, Sarah Wooderson. Sarah is no stranger to the Femi pod, being with us on episode 16 around nutrition for women athletes and episode 49 around eating disorders. If you feel you're in the right place to listen to those conversations, we suggest having a listen to those. Sarah founded Your Monthly, a business that works with women around nutrition and female physiology. Sarah is a hormone champion, expert in helping women with their periods and regaining their menstrual cycle and fertility journeys. Today, we are going to deep dive into the menstrual cycle and what is known about aligning your nutrition to your menstrual cycle and to make the most of your fluctuating hormones and also mitigate symptoms that arise during your cycle. Welcome back to the pod, Sarah. How are you? What's been happening? Hi, I'm good. I feel bad for dragging you out of bed early. Um, <laughs> it's nice to be back I can't believe did you say 63 episodes of the Femi podcast this is 68 68 go yes. to Steve. how cool the next milestone will be 100 which is very yeah nice. do we all get a t-shirt when you get 100 <laughs> yeah all the guests all the guests will get a t-shirt yeah, yeah. Um, and all the listeners no I'm kidding that's a lot yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah thanks thanks for being here Sarah we're so lucky to have you come back again no worries we obviously know that there's huge differences in sex hormones across the cycle that influence mood physical strength and so much more can you quickly recap the hormone changes across the cycle yes definitely so before we talk about the nutrition changes and recommendations across our cycle it's probably important to set the scene around the hormonal fluctuations that take place across the cycle uh, so the beginning of the cycle happens in the part of our brain called the hypothalamus, which is like the control tower of all the hormone making glands in our body. So it talks to our thyroid gland, our ovaries, it talks to our pancreas and our adrenal glands as some examples. And every month it tells another part of your brain called the pituitary gland to make luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormone. Um, and it's the beginning of our cycle. And once you have an increase in those hormones in your follicular phase, you begin to make the hormone estrogen um, from your ovaries. And then when estrogen peaks, it helps the ovarian follicles um, that contain our eggs and our ovaries to develop and mature. And there'll be one, maybe two lucky girls that get to the size of maturity that's big enough for ovulation to happen. So I always think about the cycle in kind of two key parts. I know a lot of people talk about four parts, follicular phase, ovulation, and then your luteal phase. But I think just kind of to keep it really simple, thinking about follicular, first part of your cycle, you make predominantly estrogen. So you're estrogen dominant in that part of your cycle. After you ovulate, um, you will then make the hormone progesterone. And I think progesterone is pretty special because you only make it if you ovulate. And you make progesterone from a gland that forms basically the crater side of ovulation. And that gland only has a lifespan of around two weeks. So most women who have a regular healthy cycle will get their period exactly two weeks after ovulation when that gland finally runs out of steam and you have a sharp decline in the amount of progesterone you're making. And progesterone, I kind of call it the glue that holds your uterine lining to the side of the uterus. 
So when you run out of the glue, your uterine lining will fall away and that's the beginning of your period. So follicular phase, lots of estrogen swimming around. Once you've ovulated, you have a dive in estrogen and a huge um, portion of progesterone made for uh, two weeks before you go on to have your period. And then hormonally females, I don't love this term, but we're a little bit more male-like in the amount of sex hormones we're making in our period phase. So we call that our lower hormone phase of the entire cycle. Amazing. Thank you for that very detailed explanation. <laughs> At Femi, we acknowledge that every woman is unique in her experience with menstruation and her menstrual cycle. We talk a lot about the importance of tracking your menstrual cycle so you can actually understand yourself and how you're affected by your hormones, starting to see patterns and then take action in terms of your own experience. There are ways to mitigate symptoms and we want to cover this today. So let's talk about the period to start off with. What are some common symptoms women suffer from around their period and what can they do to mitigate these symptoms with nutritional supplementation? Good question. So if I think about um, kind of the period phase itself, I like to take clients back to maybe like the two or three days before you get your period, because I think that's where nutrition can really come into play for managing something called PMS or premenstrual syndrome, which people would have definitely heard of and maybe even experienced as well. So when you have a decline in the hormone progesterone, um, right before you have your bleed, as I was talking about before, that's where women will start to experience PMS. And that can include symptoms like breast tenderness or pain. It can include irritability, skin changes like breakouts, changes in things like appetite. You can also start to experience things like cramping and cramps should be uncomfortable, but not painful. And we kind of won't dive into this too much, but painful periods is definitely not normal. So those symptoms, there's lots of different uh, nutrition information that I find really helpful for clients. The first one I often talk about with clients is magnesium supplementation for PMS, because there's some evidence that magnesium supplementation in the five days before your period, including and then including your period or your bleed days, that can help with PMS symptoms. And that's probably because um, of the impact magnesium has on a part of our brain called the HPA axis, which basically is how we interpret stress and respond to emotional stress. So the hormone progesterone, and this is getting into detail, but it helps our brain to access a neurotransmitter called GABA. And almost no one's heard of GABA, but it's the lesser known cousin of dopamine and serotonin, which every athlete has had the lovely experience of a dopamine hit after exercise. So progesterone helps our brain to feel good. And when you're having a withdrawal from that hormone right before your period, we can feel more stressed, um, more tearful. I'm definitely more grumpy at that part of my cycle. So I find with clients that magnesium is really helpful for that symptom in particular. I also find with that period cramping magnesium because it's a muscle relaxer can be really valuable as well. And the other supplement I often use with clients for period cramping and discomfort is omega-3. So omega-3 you can definitely get from food, things like chia seeds, your oily fish, avocado, olive oil, and nuts, in particular walnuts and almonds are really rich in omega-3. But I find supplementations really helpful because you can get quite a therapeutic or like a high dose of omega-3. And I would normally recommend about a thousand milligrams per day, which is the same as somebody eating, you know, like a good portion of salmon four or five times a week, which I hardly ever meet a woman who's able to do that. So cramping or that kind of discomfort around the time of our period is caused by something called prostaglandins, which we can just talk about as hormones. Um, and they cause irritability of the smooth muscle that your uterus is made from, which causes that cramping. 
And there's some evidence that omega-3 reduces the amount of prostaglandins that we make across our cycle. So it can be really helpful for period pain, particularly those with endometriosis, which is the condition that causes painful periods. So those would be like the two key supplements for that part of our cycle, magnesium and omega-3. The other thing I talk about with PMS and that breast tenderness is there's some interesting research that iodine supplementation can help with breast pain. Um, so that's something to look into. The only kind of caution I'd give listeners is if you have a thyroid condition, we don't recommend iodine supplementation without talking to your doctor first. So that's just a little disclosure. The other kind of common symptom, have you guys heard of period poop before, which is like the most awful term, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I always think it's interesting, like in the last I would say like five years, we're all getting so much better about talking about normal things that happen in our body across our cycle. And, you know, so many of us have experienced bowel changes when we have our period and you're like, oh my God, it has a name. And there's like a scientific reason why that happens. But those prostaglandins that cause our uterine cramping around the time of our period, they also impact the large intestine because it's made of the same type of muscle. And so lots of women will get like more cramping of their bowel, more urgency to open their bowels at this part of their cycle. They might feel more bloated at that part of their cycle too. And so often when I talk to clients about what are the symptoms you're struggling with with your period, the number one is cramps and the second is definitely that period purple bowel changes. So a couple of things I recommend there. Number one is try adding a tablespoon of psyllium husk um, into your diet or a smoothie, or I just take it in like 100 mils of orange juice every morning at that part of my cycle. And psyllium husk is a really rich source of a type of fiber called soluble fiber. And it basically helps to make your bowel motions soft, but really well formed. And it can help with things like bloating and those fluctuation in bowel types. Um, across that part of your cycle so it's the first thing I definitely do for runners that I work with we talk about um, managing that kind of bowel urgency when you're running and when you've got your period at that time of your cycle it can often be even worse so avoiding really rough veggie type foods um, or really high fiber foods before a run is really important so like ditching things like muesli and dried fruit in favor of things like crumpets or like a refined toast with peanut butter and banana is often a really good choice. So just being mindful of how much fiber you take on board before a run can be really useful. And most clients that I work with will have their own known triggers of what upsets their tummy or their bowels. And you're just more sensitive at that part of your cycle. So for example, if you know that every time you eat a creamy rich pasta, it never ends well, it's definitely not going to end well in that part of your cycle. Um, if you're someone who feels really bloated after having a really wheat rich meal, then that's just going to be worse at that part of your cycle. So minimizing that around your period days could be really useful. For me, it's things like dal or like lentils and chickpeas are just not a good idea at that part of my cycle, baked beans. Um, but at other points in my cycle, I could eat them and it's not as problematic. So be aware of your own triggers. You probably know them already. And just if you're tracking your cycle, it'll be easy to minimize your intake of those things for the, you know, three or five days you have your bleed. I just want to say thank you for talking about crumpets because I reckon they're my <laughs> all-time favorite food. I love them so much. Good, eh? So yeah. good. So good. And we, you get them perfect, like crunchy on the bottom, soft on the top, and then they just melt in your mouth like they are. What's your favorite crumpet topping? I have, at the moment, I'm having cashew butter and jam, which is so just bougie. so good. <laughs> Ricotta and honey is so nice. You guys are fancy. I'm just like a peanut butter <laughs> and butter. Try ricotta and honey. It's delicious. Yum. Yum. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to eat some more after this. 
that was amazing. So much information, so useful. You kind of touched on it a little bit or you you brought it up, but um, more about painful periods. Like if someone, like I know for me, I experience cramps and then I can take Panadol and they go away. But what are some strategies for someone who has, you know, yeah, mild to moderate pain? And then what's the point if someone's having, you know, trying all the things that you've said and their periods are still painful? What should they maybe do in that situation? Mm. I think period pain is such a complicated thing because pain's really subjective and people's pain threshold is really different. And we, again, I think we're getting better at kind of comparing period experiences. And I've definitely had clients that have gone on to be diagnosed with conditions like endometriosis, which we'll talk about in a moment, you know, and they thought it was normal to spend the first three days of their period on the couch with a hot water bottle, um, you know, popping Panadol and ibuprofen every three to six hours to manage that and it's only kind of in their recent adult years that they've talked to friends who don't take time off work or uni when they have their period and they've realized it's not normal so those are kind of the benchmarks if you have a type of period pain like yesterday that can be relieved from over-the-counter pain relief and it tends to kind of improve after day one or two of your period we say that that's definitely normal Um, But if it can't be relieved from over-the-counter pain relief, that's not normal. Um, If the pain is so bad, it wakes you from your sleep is another kind of key question that a a GP or a gynecologist would ask a client. And if the pain is so debilitating that it either stops you from showing up to commitments in your life, like work or school, or I think the better question is, does it make you consider not showing up? Because a lot of people don't have the option to not go to work or not go to school. So I think that question could be worded a little bit differently. But those things are not normal um, and they definitely warrant going and talking to your general practitioner or a gynecologist, which is a a doctor that specializes in female reproductive health, to talk about whether or not you might have something like endometriosis, which is attributed to really painful periods as well as other symptoms. And there's conditions like adenomyosis, which is different to endo, but also can cause period pain. And also things like fibroids, which are neither endo or adenomyosis. So there's lots of kind of curly conditions that can attribute to period pain. And they often uh, also include lots of other symptoms. And when you're talking to your GP about that, they can ask you those questions as well. If you have what we would consider normal period discomfort, my top tips for managing pain is... Number one is movement. And I know it's often the last thing we feel like doing, but exercise is a beautiful, natural um, endorphin or pain relief um, inducing experience. So like literally gentle walking, stretching, stuff that you can, you feel that you can manage that part of your cycle can be really useful. I find again, that omega-3 is really useful and it's okay to take things like ibuprofen and Panadol according to directions. There's also some interesting evidence that ibuprofen can reduce how heavy our periods are by up to around 50% of blood flow in some people. Um, So if you have heavy periods, that's something else to consider. That's so interesting. And we definitely want to talk more about heavy periods. But I just want to say firstly, like it's crazy how long it's kind of been a thing that we just accept painful periods. I'm pretty lucky that I don't have too much pain or discomfort when I have my period. But I think about some of my friends who do suffer like really badly. And, you know, growing up, we just accepted that it was normal and that it was something that we just had to deal with because we were women. So it's so 
amazing that we have people like you and our other experts who have come out and said you know it's not normal to suffer that much and like go and get help and figure out what's going on because yeah it's like something that has been around forever and I'm just I guess optimistic for the next generation of young girls coming through to actually be educated and aware that what they're suffering isn't normal and to get help I think it's awesome but let's go back to heavy periods I'm someone and I've talked about it pretty openly someone who experiences pretty heavy menstruation what are or are there other kind of mitigating factors that could contribute to a lighter flow or reducing that heavy period through like nutritional supplementation Mm. I mean, the first thing that I look at with a client who has heavy periods and they don't have conditions like endo or adenomyosis is there's evidence that having ovulation consistently can help reduce how heavy your periods are. And that's because when we ovulate, we make that hormone progesterone, which I mentioned earlier, and it can actually help to thin your uterine lining ever so slightly. And so that's one thing for listeners to consider. The other kind of key things that I talk about with clients is there's actually evidence that iron, which is a mineral we find in lots of different foods and we store in our body, that iron is a natural coagulant. So it helps to, I guess, reduce bleeding in our body. And there's a really cruel cycle that can happen where if iron is attached to our red blood cells, you know, including our period, when we have a bleed every month and you have a heavy period, you lose more iron than a woman who has a lighter period. And then if you've got lower iron stores, it could then contribute to heavier bleeds. And so women with heavy periods, I definitely recommend that you have your iron uh, stores checked, which is your ferritin as well as your circulating iron, and know where you sit in the range because the reference range of what we consider deficient and acceptable is ginormous. (laughs) And so, you know, you need to know what's normal for you and you might find taking a low dose over-the-counter iron supplement quite helpful for your heavy periods. So that would be the first thing. There's a little bit of really small research around the protein A1 casein in dairy, which I don't know if you've heard of before, Um, but there's some very small studies that suggest that maybe some people have a histamine intolerance to dairy, which I'm not going to go into in, in a lot of detail. But if I've got clients that I work with that have heavy persistent periods and we've tried other things, I will sometimes do like a dairy-free diet trial for three cycles and see if it improves their period experience. And to be honest, for every 10 clients I might do that with, maybe two will find relief. But it's pretty interesting that something as simple as becoming dairy-free can be useful. Um, But obviously replacing that protein source and calcium source with plant-based alternatives will be really important. So yeah, ibuprofen, iron, dairy-free for some people and getting your periods checked out would be the other thing. I don't know if you found anything particularly helpful, Liz, across your cycle um, that helps with your heavy bleeds. Yeah, I haven't really probably tried too many things, to be honest. I, as I said, don't get painful periods. And so the fact that I'm not in pain and it is just a heavy flow for two or three days, I guess I've learned to live with, but I can probably go and get things checked out and and maybe try ibuprofen because I haven't tried that before. So check back in with me because I'll try (laughs) it next cycle and I'll let you know. Yeah. The other thing which your listeners might find interesting is our periods can change across our lifespan. And a lot of women after they've had children, their periods are significantly heavier than before they've had babies. And that's because your uterus never goes back to the size it was pre-baby. And so you just have more endometrium or uterine lining than you used to to fall away. And that's something I definitely noticed and lots of my friends have noticed since having kids. doesn't mean we suddenly have endo. We just have different uteruses than we did before. 
Um, well, do you know what I found really interesting and whether there's any uh, science behind this or not, I got my period when I was 12 and I think for the first couple of years it was fine. And then at a pretty young age, like either 13 or 14, I went on the pill and I can't remember which pill it was for my skin because I had pretty bad acne when I was a teenager and I was really self-conscious about it. And so I went to the clinic and got on the pill and that only lasted for a couple of months because it made me feel so terrible. And then I've had heavy periods since then. And so I wonder because of going on contraception at such a young age where my menstrual cycle was really only just becoming regular, if that's kind of like interrupted my cycle a bit and maybe is the reason I have the, the heavy, those heavy periods and they also have the low iron is going on as well. So yeah. yeah, who knows what's kind of behind it all, but I'll try to find some answers. Experiment. So interesting. We spoke to Claire, the Femi physiologist recently about iron, and you just talked about it then and how that cycle of having heavy bleeds and low iron contribute to each other, which is really rough. But what are some things we can do if someone is suffering low iron or even just to stay on top of their iron levels nutrition wise to boost iron and then also things to avoid to help keep their iron nice and high? Mm-hmm. So the key things to know is that I always personify the mineral iron because I think it makes it um, easier to kind of understand. But iron as a nutrient is really sensitive and it's not very um, what we call bioavailable to the body. So, you know, if you read labels or you kind of like Google how much iron is in my food, you're only probably getting if it's a heme source of iron, which is literally only red meat and offal you're absorbing probably around 25% of the iron content in that meal. And then if it's a plant-based or a non-heme source of iron, which we find in things like eggs, dairy, nuts and seeds, whole grains, dark leafy green vegetables and certain dried fruits, you're probably only absorbing about 15% from that meal, which is crazy. So you can see how iron is quite difficult if you're somebody who has other risk factors to iron deficiency, like you're a runner, you're female, so you have a period and you're losing every month. You're plant-based, so you don't have access to you know those heme richer sources of iron. It's quite hard for us to maintain our iron levels. So I think that's the first thing to be aware of. I definitely recommend that if you can catch your iron stores being depleted early, it's easier to get on top of them. So I recommend to all of my athletes to get their iron levels checked every six months to make sure that you kind of know what's happening in your body and be aware of what your normal is, as I mentioned before. So, you know, as an example, in New Zealand, the iron or the ferritin uh reference range of what we consider normal is anywhere between a level of 20 to 200 but I would say if I was working with an athlete and she had a ferritin of 22 although a GP would be like well that's normal you're not iron deficient I'd look at that and say well we can do something about this now before you get to a deficiency level so know where your normal is in terms of like nutrition recommendations if you um, are including red meat in your diet I definitely recommend to do that at least three times a week if you can and if you're able to tolerate it because it's such a valuable source of iron if you are plant-based or you don't include red meat for whatever reason you just need to be aware of your requirements and make sure that you have an iron rich source of food at every meal and snack if you can and there's lots of novel sources of iron and I know like in our Femi Theory content we talk about this but things like iron's fortified in products like wheat bix Milo who doesn't love a Milo Marmite not Vegemite 
Um, and it's also in things like dried figs and dried apricots. You know, it's in oats, whole grain bread, nut butters, tahini, like lots of foods that you might not consider. So, um, you know, you can Google what are the richest sources of iron and there's lots of information online that you can find and just make sure that you're adding them to your diet. Iron is also because it's really sensitive to absorb. There are certain things that we might be doing in our diet that can inhibit iron absorption. So, for example, the first thing is a phytocompound called tannins, which you find in coffee and tea and red wine. So I just can't tell you how many women have an iron-rich breakfast like spinach and eggs on whole grain toast. And then they have a lovely long black on the side. And it doesn't, I used to look super guilty when I'm saying that, but it contributes to not being able to absorb the iron from that meal you've just made yourself. So I tell clients, have your long black, you know, 30 minutes before your iron-rich meal or 30 minutes after to try and mitigate that effect. Same as if you cook yourself a beautiful lentil bolognese or a lovely scotch fillet steak for dinner and you have a glass of Pinot Noir, you've completely ruined <laughs> the iron absorption. So try and have your wine pre-dinner and in the same breath vitamin c is a very abundant in our diet and it helps us to actually absorb iron from our food so lots of people take an a vitamin c supplement with their iron supplement or you can just do things that include um, a vitamin c rich food with your meals so as an example if you were having eggs on toast the spinach would have vitamin c or like a kiwi fruit or some sliced fruit alongside that meal would be more than adequate or a tomato on your plate as well you know, with your evening meal, choosing really color-rich vegetables, so things like peppers and tomatoes with your meal would help you to absorb the iron from that meal. So those will be the top things. Claire may have also spoke about a hormone called hepcidin, which we make on the back of exercise, um, and it inhibits iron absorption. And so there is some, um, I guess, interesting research, and Claire's definitely more equipped to talk about this than myself, but around the timing of iron supplementation, so if we were to, if a woman was on iron supplementation for iron deficiency, she may be more likely to benefit from that supplementation if you take it in the morning before you've exercised versus taking it, you know, with that recovery meal after exercise where you have more of that hormone in circulation, which is going to inhibit your body's ability to actually absorb the iron from the supplement you're taking. And I know that's lots of things to try and think about. Um, but if you're someone who suffers from chronic iron deficiency, that might be really valuable to play with. Yeah, amazing. Thank you. If you haven't listened to the episode with Claire, we definitely recommend going back and listening to it, especially if you're someone like myself who suffers from low iron and want to know and understand it better. So many golden nuggets you're giving to us, and we've kind of covered that premenstrual menstrual phase of the menstrual cycle. What about ovulation? Is there anything we can do around ovulation when estrogen is peaking that can maybe mitigate symptoms if we are feeling any kind of discomfort or pain around that time? Yeah. So some women feel ovulation and they swear black and blue that they get ovulation pain or they're just also really symptomatic to the huge hormone shift that takes place where you kind of hand over the torch from estrogen to progesterone. The research in that part of our cycle is really, really minimal. And kind of what I would tend to talk about with ovulation, when you've got that really high estrogen level, this is also the same for your follicular phase, is that appetite suppression that takes place. Lots of women really struggle around eating enough at that part of their cycle if they're quite intuitive with food, like eating in response to hunger only. And as you know, as athletes, we can't always rely on appetite as a sign that, you know, this is what we need to eat and how much we need to eat. 
estrogen helps our cells to access glucose. And so we become more efficient at using carbohydrates that we include in our diet at that part of our cycle. And because of that, it can be detrimental to appetite. And so I always talk about with my athletes, being aware of your requirements, knowing that it's okay to eat, even if you're not hungry. Um, we all have foods that we're probably more tempted with that we eat even if we're not hungry. So I always find things like smoothies, really easy to get lots of calories, lots of nutrition in and you can get them into you after exercise as opposed to sitting down to like a bigger meal. But I would say for clients that have ovulation pain, I would try things like that magnesium earlier in your cycle or maybe the omega-3 across the board in the cycle. But it's quite rare to experience ovulation pain. It's probably more people symptomatic of that huge hormonal shift, but it's really poorly researched. So interesting. I sometimes get ovulation pain, like on the mainly on the right side. I don't know why. Maybe that one, like, is that normal? Most people <laughs> ovulate mostly on their right ovary. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because I'm like, sometimes it can be quite sore and then sometimes I just don't feel it. So yeah, so interesting. It'd be cool if there'd be research in that part of the cycle soon, hopefully. If you've ever had a pelvic ultrasound after ovulation, your radiographer can actually see like microscopic bleeding from the ovary that's ovulated, which like, that's insane. You can see which ovary clearly did its job that month, which is interesting. So interesting. I I can't remember who was saying this, whether it was you or Izzy. It's like, it's actually like bursting out, right? So it can cause pain. Yeah. It's like an eruption. (laughs) (laughs) mental also around like the ovulation phase and I've seen it before on social media and brands saying that they've got the solution to this but the idea of flushing out estrogen and I think I've talked to you about it before Sarah and it's such a like probably like a buzz thing and it's just not 100% accurate but like we know hormone imbalance can cause issues for women but what does flushing out estrogen mean how do we do it and does it even work what I assume that statement means if I'm just like thinking about other things that I've read and kind of heard online so our body makes hormones and then it can actually clear them or excrete them in our bowel motions plus it can also recycle hormones because it doesn't want to waste anything right so what we know about our gut bacteria or our microbiome that live in our large intestine is that they probably have a really huge role in clearing through bowel movements excessive estrogen that we might make but also recycling estrogen for people who need it put back into the system. And really interestingly, this is something I'm kind of doing some further research myself into at the moment, is the microbiome shift that happens to us in menopause as females. So our gut microbiome significantly changed during menopause and it contributes to an increase in irritable bowel syndrome, but also exacerbates that hormone deficit in menopause, which is quite interesting. So for clients who want to learn more about estrogen excretion, we talk about like basically gut health stuff. So, you know, are you eating in a way that looks after your gut bacteria? If you imagine that they've kind of created a little factory around estrogen clearance in your large intestine, I imagine that's what estrogen flushing as kind of like a buzzword, I would imagine that's what they're talking about. Yeah, it's so funny. And also I've talked to Dr. Izzy about this before as well around this idea of like balancing out your hormones. And I think a lot of people talk about like they've got some solution to balance out your hormones as a female and make you feel better. But like, what does that even mean? Because I feel in my mind, balancing out your hormones is like flatlining your hormones and that's not something that you really want to do. 
literally as you were saying that Lydia I was thinking well they're not balanced they're meant to be chaotic and a roller coaster across the cycle and it's about acknowledging that yeah there's parts of that that suck like you know we don't want to have PMS and skin breakouts and have low libido at the second half of you know our cycle but we do all of that for the acknowledgement that when we're making estrogen you know we are stronger faster um, more creative more optimistic more social it's all part of being female it's what makes us exciting yeah I definitely want to flush my estrogen out I need my estrogen (laughs) it keeps me strong it's strong why am I trying to get rid of it yeah what about progesterone you spoke about PMS a little bit but is there anything that we can look at in terms of like the way we're eating maybe we're looking at particular food groups protein carbs um, around that kind of time where progesterone is rising in our luteal phase and then dropping off late luteal phase? Mm-hmm. I mean, to make progesterone, as we talked about before, you have to ovulate and a lack of ovulation or inconsistent ovulation can cause all kinds of issues with cycles. And to ovulate women, we've talked about this so much before, but we need to be eating enough carbs, protein, not just calories, but there's lots of evidence that it's carbohydrate sufficiency that drives ovulation for females, not just calorie sufficiency. So that's like a whole other episode on itself, but eating enough. So you ovulate. If you ovulate, you make good amounts of progesterone, which is really important for your cycle. Um, other things for people to consider when you are progesterone dominant in the second half of your cycle is it does increase your basal body temperature ever so slightly, which is why you can measure uh, whether or not you've ovulated by tracking your basal body temperature across your cycle because you see your temperature increasing and for lots of athletes that can cause like a, a poor tolerance to heat training in particular um, and I notice this a lot in my clients who are kind of older in that menopause group where they're already struggling with heat intolerance as well and our sweat rate can also increase at that part of our cycle so if you're somebody who finds and everyone's sweat rate is so individual but if you're noticing that you're a lot thirstier, you're feeling dehydrated, that you're sweating more when you're training at this part of your cycle, that preemptive hydration and electrolyte intake is probably really important for you to consider with that part of your cycle. Other things that I talk about with clients there is, again, those bowel changes. So progesterone actually slows down your gut transit time. Progesterone wants you to get pregnant. It literally stands for progestation, which means pro-pregnancy. And so it's slowing down how food moves through your system to give your body more opportunity to absorb nutrition from food, which I think is like so bloody clever and fascinating. But again, if you're more symptomatic or you have like a, a grumpy digestion system as a baseline anyway, you might find that you're more bloated at that part of your cycle and that's uncomfortable. Um, you might find that you're more constipated at that part of your cycle, which can also be within the realm of normal. And so depending on what your digestion changes are, like with that bloating, I definitely recommend clients minimizing foods that cause lots of fermentation in the large intestine, which is the production of gas. So things like um, minimizing intake of onion and garlic, mushrooms and cauliflower in particular, those lentils and chickpeas and beans and pulses. Um, If you are plant-based, you'll probably find the tinned varieties are a little bit easier to tolerate than the dried varieties as well. Really highly fermentable fruits, so stone fruits, dried fruits, apples and pears in particular tend to be a nightmare. And anything kind of carbonated in your diet, so you know, people will often drink kombucha thinking it's good for their gut health, but then you're drinking lots of bubbles and that might be exacerbating bloating. Or most people have a soda stream on their <laughs> kitchen bench nowadays. You go to a cafe and you're often sparkling water. So 
Again, if you know there's things that make you bloated, minimize them at that part of your cycle if you are noticing kind of more discomfort. And if you're constipated, I definitely recommend things like kiwi crush or lots of kiwi fruit can be really beneficial. Stay super hydrated. Consider the electrolyte replacement as well because that sodium intake can really help with constipation and make sure you're getting enough fiber in your diet, which is those plant-based foods. Yeah, great. I drink way too much carbonated water. I am someone who doesn't drink enough water and the only way to get water into me is if it tastes good and is refreshing. So I drink way too much carbonated water. I just want to go back to the point you're talking about peri and post-menopause and I'm not sure if you saw, it's definitely another topic that just doesn't get spoken about enough. Mm -hmm. Um, Recently on Instagram, I saw a video of Drew Barrymore and she was on a talk show and she was experiencing her first like hot flush and she was like, really open about it and like you know told the audience that was what she was going through and she was having to strip layers off and I just thought it was so incredible people like her who have so much influence and are so you know incredible women outwardly themselves but just like to stand up on a stage and be like I am experiencing a hot flush and this is what's happening to me and I'm going through like I think that was so cool I totally agree. I was talking to a client the other day, actually, about how in every other life cycle phase of being a female, we do all this kind of preparation about understanding what's happening to our body. And an example of that is like pregnancy, these antenatal classes where you go and you learn about like what's happening to your body and what will happen postpartum. And you're kind of designed by society to feel like the need to be really equipped for that really big change that's going to happen to you. But we almost need like antenatal classes for menopause. I don't know what you'd call that. But, you know, like education around this is what's super normal. This is how you can manage it. This, are, um, you know, like these are things that you would find really beneficial at this part of your life. And people like Drew Barrymore making it really normal and, you know, not embarrassing to talk about what's happening to her body, I think opens up that platform for education. How oh, cool. I'm going to Google that later. Definitely cool. Yeah, we need it for young girls about to go through their periods and we need it for women about mm-hmm. to go through menopause or going through or starting perimenopause because it's like I reckon those two parts of the lifespan of a woman are not given enough attention and not enough mm-hmm. education. But, yeah, we need to do a podcast on menopause. This is this has been Please. on the for a while, so we will, we will get you in on that one. So just to summarise that incredible amount of information, if we could go through the cycle and take like one key tip for each phase, so whether it be like period, follicular phase, you know, leading up into ovulation, luteal, and then PMS, what would you say? And that's probably really hard. For those of you listening, I appear stressed because I'm like, what is the one thing I'd say? I would say if you're somebody who's kind of like, regardless of where you're in your cycle, if you're somebody who experiences lots of symptoms of hormonal shifts, I would try the magnesium and the omega-3 across your cycle. I've just seen that really beneficial for lots of clients. This is me like (laughs) taking your short fire thing and making it complicated. That'll be the first thing. For your follicular phase, I would say um, be aware of the appetite awareness. So you cannot trust hunger anymore and know your requirements as an athlete. For your luteal phase, I would be mitigating the bowel changes in particular. Um, so be aware of the foods that cause you bloating and constipation and do something about them because that can impact everything. Appetite, how you're sleeping, how you feel when you exercise, 
in your period phase, I would say my number one thing would be that iron, like thinking about our FEMI community and our athletes, iron is probably, if we were to do our own little research in our FEMI athletes, we'd probably pick up lots of iron deficiency. So check your iron, pay careful attention to that nutrient because it has such a huge impact on our physical and even our mental well-being. There's lots of evidence around iron and depression and things as well. So those would be my things. Omega, magnesium, across your cycle, follicular, appetite awareness, luteal, look after your bowel period instead of iron I love that that's so good because I think there's so much information and you are you are full of wisdom but for someone who's like maybe just taking their first step into understanding the cycle and what they can do at home every day in terms of what they're eating it can be quite overwhelming so those little quick tips I think are super helpful that is it from us today we do have two quick fire questions for you before you wrap up and we wanted to give you some new ones because we know you've been on the pod a couple of times so the first quick fire question for you is if you had all the money in the world what is one thing you'd do to shift the needle on gender equality in sport for women pay us the same as male athletes when we fucking win yes (laughs) fuck yes it's so good I love that and then the last one is what's that said more than male athletes but that's not cool (laughs) well we need to catch up right so we need equity to get to equality interest on being underpaid yeah let's go 100 years back and pay us that (laughs) sounds good if you could be a professional athlete in one sport what would it be ultra running always forever Love that. I love nerdy. They love eating. They're just they're the best. best people. We're just a bunch of like running obsessed women because we <laughs> asked Claire the same question and she said running too. A gymnast or a surfer or, you know, anything, but running's pretty good. Maybe skiing would be my second. That would be pretty good. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. That was so incredible. So much information. I'm sure our listeners would have absolutely loved that conversation. If you do have any questions for Sarah, you can either come directly to us on Instagram at femi.co or to our website, femi.co. And we will also tag Sarah into our show notes. You can go ahead, give her a follow at your monthly. But thank you so much, Sarah. We will be back in everybody's ears next week. Thank you.